Hi. So lots of um, questions are coming up for you. And uh, so I'm going to try to have a a long enough uh, question period. I'd like to talk about a couple of things before we practice together. And the first is a, a gentle reminder that our practice, our loving kindness practice, just like all of the other practices that we do when we encounter the Dharma, is for the cultivation of one's heart, cultivation of one's the clarity in one's mind, and uh, clarity in the heart uh, in the form of kindness. Because the loving-kindness practice, in the form that we teach it, and and there are other forms in which it can be taught, is verbal, you know, it's a mental, a a verbal, uh, a repetition of, of phrases, and it's addressed to an external being with certain wishes for those beings, it can, we can sometimes forget that the basic aim of the practice is the cultivation of one's own heart. So that sometimes what we begin to do is to think, oh, well, I really need to send metta to this one, and I need to send metta to that one, and I need to, I can't forget my brother, and oh, so-and-so is in this kind of problem, and so-and-so is, in, and, and it's as if we think we're fixing the world. <laughs> Good luck with that. (laughs) Many people better than us have tried, and we see the condition it's in. So essentially, uh, the, the cultivation of the ground of one's heart is what heals the world. As we, as we heal our own hearts, then what happens is as we plant the seeds of kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity in our hearts, that's what we come to our relationships with. And as we come to our relationships with with that ground, then the relationships are healed to varying degrees, right? It's not as if we're going to fix everybody. We haven't even been able to fix ourselves, you know, so we have to give up on that. At some point, we let go of even the idea that we ourselves will be fixed. But that in, what we know is that in every single moment, we have a choice of how we will respond to the experiences that are arising, to the beings with whom we're interacting. And so in in every moment, there's a kind of decision tree. We can either go with the habit of reactivity that we have, or we can start a new pathway. We can uh, uh, transform how we meet experience. 
So the image I always get when I speak about this is the image of a tsunami. That our, our habitual ways of reacting to experience are like a tsunami in the mind-body organism. So it's a really strong force. And then as we practice, whether we're cultivating a ground of loving kindness and compassion, etc., or of, of mindfulness and awareness and presence, that in the beginning, that's like a tiny little wave that meets this huge tsunami of habit. And then as, as time goes on and as we cultivate more and more this new way of being, this new way of uh, responding to what is in our field of experience, then that small wave starts to become much larger. And it begins to be able to meet the tsunami so that the tsunami is no longer overpowering. The small wave of, of dharma that we're um, uh, developing and the old habit of reactivity starts to subside and the, the, the calmer waves uh, begin to be the way in which we, we meet um, experience. So we can't rush it and it's not going to um, change and shift every single way in which we are today. We don't want to do that. But what we know we can do is that we can meet experience when we are awake and, we, and experience uh, arises in our mind-body field. That, that, awake, that awakeness allows us to see, oh, there's another way of meeting this. And as we practice over and over and over and over again, it becomes a new way of being, a new way of responding. And it will take its own time, and it will have its own arc, and it's not a 45-degree angle as to how it develops, right? It's more like a sine wave. So, you know, at times, if all of the causes and conditions come together in the right way, we meet this fresh experience with kindness and compassion and equanimity and joy and all of that. And if they come together in another way, we meet it in the old habitual way. The difference is that, as we practice, is that when we meet experience in that old way, even that can be held in kindness. Ah, there it is, the habit of the mind. Oh, rather than, you know, there it is, my practice is terrible, I can't do it, I never could do it, what made me think I could do it, I'm failing at it, I'm going to always suck at this, I'm horrible, and it's not that. It's more, oh. So kindness becomes our new habit, our new way of meeting experience. And so when we are looking at uh, who we choose as a friend. For instance, some, someone in an interview said, or in a meeting today said, um, you know, my friend is really beginning to annoy me, right? So choose another friend. 
you know, so that friend's going to now become the enemy or the difficult person. It's okay to choose another friend. And why do we do that? Because in the text that sets out this practice, it's a, it essentially says that you're um, starting with, with uh, if you start with the benefactor or yourself, it's theoretically the easiest person that you can send loving kindness to. So there's no struggle. There's no, there's no struggle with, how, with uh, sending it to, that, to the easiest person. And so then the heart becomes tenderized in an easy way. It's what Sharon was talking about with Upandita, I think, this morning. You know, that you don't have to make it so hard on yourself. And, and the text essentially says, you know, you start with the easiest person. And then when you get to the next person, say you've done the benefactor and your heart is feeling open and so you move to the friend. What the text essentially says is that you're, you're, because of the work you've done with the benefactor, you are um, relating to the friend now in the same way that you're related to the benefactor. And on and on. So when you, then you, you work with the friend and now the friend is like you're, you're treating the friend or meeting the friend like the benefactor. So that when you get to the neutral person, you're meeting the neutral person in the same way that you met the friend. So metta then becomes like the sun, which shines on everyone equally, or the rain that falls on everyone equally. So, so, uh, so it's a developmental and a progressive practice that essentially is a training of the heart. So we don't have to feel as if we're neglecting people because we're choosing this friend and not that one, or we're choosing our brother but not our sister, or our assistant but not our brother. Because essentially, the work that we are doing is on this heart, this heart, this heart. And then when this heart becomes tenderized, it treats all of these beings equally with, with our loving kindness. So that's the first part. Then the second part is that we've gotten a few, um, a few notes about forgiveness and what role forgiveness has in, uh, in this practice. And it can be a very important role is an, it has an important role. And uh, like the practice with the difficult person can also be very delicate. I think Sharon spoke this morning about not needing to, for, not thinking that we're going to forgive, uh, no, we're not going to uh, offer metta to the person who's done the worst thing in the world possible that it may not be in the beginning of our practice, that may not, it might not be practical to choose that person. The forgiveness practice, the ability to forgive, especially ourselves, can be a really important foundational aspect of uh, this practice of um, tenderizing the heart and developing and cultivating kindness. 
having been in South Africa this last month for six weeks and traveled around and especially visiting Robben Island, which is where uh, Mr. Mandela was. Uh, I've gotten used to calling him Mr. Mandela now because that's what everybody in South Africa calls him. Uh, where he was imprisoned for 18 years of his 25 years of imprisonment. I was incredibly moved because um, the people who conduct the tours of Robben Island, which is now a museum, are all ex-prisoners, are all people who were imprisoned there. And so it's an incredibly moving experience, first of all. And I just got a chill as I said that. To, um, to be shown around this island by people who were clearly unjustly um, imprisoned for many of them for 17, 14, 8, 10, 12 years. And to be in an atmosphere where uh, it would have been totally understandable for the response to be hatred and revenge once uh, Mr. Mandela was freed and the uh, and the and the country was freed from the horrible um, uh, legacy of apartheid. It would have been incredibly understandable for people to take up arms, and as a matter of fact, what we were told is that um, there was a fear that there would be a huge bloodbath. And yet this incredibly elegant man, deep, profound being, understood deeply that what was necessary for his own sanity and for the beauty of his country to continue, and it is an indeed a, a spectacularly beautiful country. He said that what the only thing that would be, uh, that would save South Africa's beauty would be two things, goodness and forgiveness. And in fact, he had um, the, his main uh, guard, and I took pictures of his little cell, which was smaller than any of the bathrooms here. <coughs> his, uh, he had his guard sitting right in the middle front seat at his inauguration. And he said, South Africa is a wonderful country. First you're a prisoner, and then you become president. <laughs> right? And to be shown around by these people who had been, and I won't go into all of the horrible degradation and deprivation to which people were subjected, but to have each uh, guide speak to us at the end of the tour, 
to tell us how important forgiveness and reconciliation were was an incredibly it was an incredibly moving experience and we're talking not about um, you know, just some small slight that was uh, endured, but really um, beyond our own imagining. And so uh, there was a renewal for me with um, the practice of forgiveness. It's importance because we've seen how on the continent of Africa, many of the countries where uh, there wasn't that kind of wisdom that prevailed, uh, many of them have sunk into uh, protracted civil wars and incredible economic deprivation and difficulty for people who are bent on revenge and even though it's understandable, it's not productive or uh, in the end, it helps no one. So the Buddha's words on uh, that hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed, that is the eternal law. Or Gandhi's uh, uh, saying that Revenge doesn't do anything. Uh, an eye for an eye does nothing but make the whole world blind. Can be an inspiration for the difficulties that we've had with other beings in our lives. And uh, really un- to understand that forgiveness is not so much, just in the same way that loving kindness is not about our heal- about fixing somebody else or make, helping somebody else to become something else. In the same way, forgiveness is not so much about the deeds that were done by the other person, although of course it has some effect on it, on you, but it's, but it's more about our own hearts and what we carry around in our own hearts. As my teacher says, you know, you can be sitting there resenting what someone else has done to you and they're having a great time in Hawaii, right? (laughs) So who's the miserable one? So we're not going to do a forgiveness practice here, but I encourage you to look into it and to really see, you know, and and, and just to tell you that I, I, you know, I see also in South Africa what what's gone on over the years is this Truth and Reconciliation Commission and, and how it's been a process. It hasn't been, okay, so you did all this bad stuff and we forgive you, let's move on. No. It's a process of grieving and acknowledgement and uh, a whole way of unfolding so that 
when we do eventually find a way to forgive, whether it's ourselves or other beings, it's not based on some transcendental idea about how we should be, but really based on a developmental and progressive understanding of what it means to be human and that we're not forgiving uh, the deed so much as the flawed human being who shares the f- many of the flaws that we all have as human beings. So I encourage you to, um, if there is something in your life or someone in your life that you feel has done some terrible wrong to you, that you examine what it is, how it's affected your life, and see if there is a way that you can begin to unwind that effect. Because there's the deed, and then the trail of the effects of the deed. And can we free ourselves, to some degree, over time, of those effects? So let's sit together. So we can start with ourselves or the benefactor. Moving on to the dear friend.
to the neutral person. and to the difficult person, and I know that it's compressed, but bear with me. And to the extent that you are able See if you can, with this difficult person, because we have recommended it be somebody who's not your most difficult person, see if there is any space for forgiveness of this difficult person as you wish them. You send them the wishes of goodwill. even if there's just a small crack in the heart. Allow that to be there. You don't have to force it or make something happen, but just see what's possible.
and then send them your wishes. And then allow your loving-kindness to pervade this building, including all the beings here, including yourself and your wishes. Are there any questions? Yes, please. <coughs> Although, theoretically, the one who practices the, these practices and someone who identifies as a Buddhist and practices these practices, <coughs> there shouldn't be a difference. But I expect there usually is a difference um, when someone takes the or makes the psychological decision to identify as a Buddhist. And I'm just wondering what those differences could be um, with regards to ritual practice and feelings of worship and devotion? Question. <laughs> what a question. Uh, Weston's asked the question about the difference between someone who just practices as a Buddhist and someone who identifies as a Buddhist. Is that, is that correct? And uh, whether there are differences between those two of uh, ritual practice and devotion. Is that a good summary of the question you asked? Well, it, you know, it can take a lot of different forms. Um, our, I think in our Western culture, we are working on um, bringing the Dharma here fully, even though it's been here now for quite a while. Um, as we know from studying 
the different ways it's practiced, and many of us have gone to different Asian countries, which is where it's mainly practiced, um, that it's taken up all kinds of different forms in every culture that it's touched. So Japanese Buddhism practiced in Japan is somewhat different than Buddhism practiced in China, even though that's a, it's the same root. So in China it's Chan, and in Japan it's Zen, but it, there's there are differences. Or Korea, and then uh, uh, if you go to Southeast Asia, Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia, there's yet a you know some differences in Tibet, where it took on you know some of the culture of Tibet and uh, Burma and Thailand again. So all of these different places, there are different uh, forms of Buddhism that are um, practiced because Buddhism seems to meet the culture and, uh, and the culture gets somewhat infused in the way it's practiced. So in, in America, what's our religion? It's basically psychotherapy. So it's taken on some of those aspects. Um, you know, it's really been attracted in the West, in America at least, to, um, or and I can probably generalize it to the West, to, you know, the, its, its psychological aspects, the Abhidhamma and Buddhist psychology are really um, elevated. Uh, and for various reasons, which we don't have time to go into, uh, the way it was brought here by different people like Sharon and Joseph Goldstein and Jack Cornfield who started IMS with a woman named Jacqueline Schwartz um, had their own particular cultural biases. And so when they brought it here, having been authorized by their teachers in Thailand and Burma, they thought that the best thing to do was to like remove a lot of the devotional trappings because they thought that Americans would not be willing to hear it in the same way if the, if the devotional um, aspects were front and center. And so, and even, even so, you know, many of us who practice, uh, I'll tell you a short story and then I think I have to move on, but uh, my, my husband and I, the first retreat we ever went to together. He's, he and I were both lawyers at the time, so he's very, you know, I need to know kind of person, which I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and he, he got an interview with a teacher and, you know, she was going on about this and that and the other thing. And he said, just hold on a second. Are you a Buddhist? And she said, that's none of your business. And he said, fine, I want another teacher. Right? But I thought it was an interesting response from a teacher who was basically teaching Dharma. And, you know, I don't know if it was right or wrong. I just think it's interesting. Because... Um, we somehow are going to great lengths here in, in America, not at IMS, but in America, to not own it, 
because we are, many of us are refugees from religion, right? I've been wounded sometimes by religion, and so we're a little bit gun-shy, and so we don't want to identify as this or that. So um, it's a very long answer to a very to a relatively short question. The short answer is, um, I think you have to find your own way. There, we clearly still have lots of monastic uh, retreats where um, the devotional aspect is highly prized and practiced. And you have to find your own way with what is offered. So, um, you know, you may notice that I bow when I come into the hall and I bow most of the time, three times when I leave um, the hall, unless I'm too self-conscious about the fact that you're all looking at me and waiting for me to go. (laughs) So I'll give a a shorter bow. Um, And I do that for my own practice because I, I like to mark when I come in, I'm here now. First of all, I've left the concerns of the world outside, and I'm also bowing to my own um, possibility of freedom, and to the Dharma, and to the Sangha, as well as um, honoring the, uh, the person long gone who taught these beautiful teachings. But for many people, they don't find that outer. It's not that they're any less respectful than I am. They just don't find that outer expression necessary. So you need to find your own way because of the way it's offered in America. I hope that's helpful. Yes, please. Can you uh, offer some thoughts on caring and uh, loving-kindness practice and mindfulness practice forward together? forward together. together. We'll be addressing that um, towards the closing, in the the closing uh, moments of the, in the closing hours of the retreat. Um, So we'll be talking very specifically about how to take the practice home, which is what I think you're asking. Um, So I'd like, if you, if you don't mind, I'd like to leave that question until then. I'm actually asking that loving kindness practice one specific thing in mindfulness practice and how to, thoughts on uh, carrying both forward as I'm practicing when I, when I leave the retreat. Maybe that's something that will be addressed. It will be re- addressed. It will be addressed. So I, so I hope that's okay. Yes, please. Yes. Uh, <laughs> is meditation and, and prayer the same thing? Is, is what? Is meditation and prayer the same thing? What kind of prayer are you talking about? Prayer for someone who's well or something like that. Oh, so you're talking about um, meta? Is meta is meta meditation and prayer the same, or are you talking about meditation in general? I guess in general. Okay. So, in uh, I, I know there have been a lot of clever answers to that, but I can't come up with them right now. So the question is um, whether. Uh, meditation and prayer are the same, and I, I wasn't saying that facetiously, because I, I was trying to remember. There's some a quote from someone, but I can't remember it. In some ways, uh, no, they're not. 
because prayer is a kind of um, uh, um, request for something to happen. I think the kind of prayer that you're talking about. And, and usually it's addressed to an external um, entity. Meditation is a real going in. It's not a going out. It's a going in to really see what's true and to cultivate this mind-heart so that um, our relationship to experience is transformed. And I think that's somewhat different than the request for a particular outcome. Now, it doesn't mean that, that in meditation we don't have an intention for a particular outcome or a motivation for a particular outcome. Um, but the, but the, the modality of uh, moving inward rather than moving outward, I think, is somewhat different. Yes, please. And that's the last question. Um, yesterday when Sharon was talking about equanimity, she made the point that it was not to be confused with apathy, but rather is a certain type of wisdom or perspective that's... So the questions about equanimity and what Sharon said about equanimity being a kind of that it's not apathy, and but that it's it's more a kind of spacious uh, way of, of of responding. And what you were saying is that that there are different temperaments and that, that certain people have uh, the kind of temperament that moves through. Um, experience a little bit more quickly, or maybe I, I, I'm gathering that what you mean is that they're a little bit more fiery, mm-hmm. and that it may be harder for those that kind of temperament to access equanimity. Yeah. Maybe that's true, I don't know. Um, but I think that the quality of equanimity is accessible to everyone. And it comes out of um, a, a ground of, of understanding, uh, a ground of wisdom, in which we understand that, uh, res- that what's, happening, what's happening in any given moment is a result of causes and conditions. And there are myriad causes and conditions over which we have some control in terms of what we can, what we contribute, but no control over what anybody else contributes or what other conditions are um, extant in any particular situation. So the, ch- the chant of equanimity is all beings are heirs to their karma. Their happiness or unhappiness does not depend upon my wishes for them, but upon their own choices. 
And that can feel distant and cold and apathetic, but actually it's a, it's a statement of wisdom that yes, whatever, we, whatever causes and conditions we put into motion, we can be sure that there will be consequences and effects from that. You know, the, a wide range of possibilities, right? And that therefore we can show up with our full selves and do the very, very best that we can and let go of any expectation of outcome. Even though we may have an intention for a particular outcome, our wisdom knows that because of our lack of control over all of the causes and conditions, the outcome is not within our... We can't, we can't say what it's going to be and we can't dictate it. We can just do the best we can. That's what equanimity is. It's not a kind of distant, oh well, you know, what did you expect? There's their karma, right? It's not that. That's a kind of coldness and apathy. It, it's still suffused with kindness and compassion, but it's, but it's, it's based in that wisdom that knows how things unfold and that things unfold lawfully. They're not unfolding unlawfully. You don't plant an apple seed and get a pear tree, right? You plant an apple seed, you get an apple tree. You plant a pear seed, you get a pear tree. And in the same way, whatever we think, say, and do have their consequences. So what's the, so, so our, our activity that comes out of equanimity knows, oh, I need to show up in this moment and do the very best I can according to what I know in integrity, in generosity, in kindness, with patience, with determination, all of the paramis that we talked about. So we show up with as much of that as we can because none of us is perfected. Right? So to the extent that we have any of those paramis operating in our um, mind-body field, we show up with that. And to the extent that the opposites are operating, we're, we're working. We're working to cultivate this kind heart and this heart of patience, etc. Because we understand deeply and that's where our Um, our perspective of equanimity comes from. Equanimity is sometimes described as a spacious view, or or upeka, the word word in Pali, means looking over. It doesn't mean overlooking things. It means that we are at a place in our understanding where we can look over and see the larger picture. I hope that helps. You're welcome. So it's time for walking, and I'll stay back for a few minutes if you have further questions. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.